time has come is we've got to go the extra step. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. I'll compromise. We want to get the job done. I'm Addison Lathers. Geez, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to balance the power here. And I'm Claire Salmi. It's a patriotic responsibility, for God's sake. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today, we are grateful for the opportunity to talk to Laura Bishop. Laura graduated from UW-Madison with a BA in International Relations and Scandinavian Studies, and also earned a Master's of Public Policy from the University of Michigan. Laura has a long and distinguished career working at the highest levels of politics and business. Currently the CEO and founder of Purpose Strategies, which has a focus on advancing sustainability solutions and advising environmental strategies, Laura previously worked in Washington, D.C. at the White House and State Department, directed government relations at Best Buy, and was the commissioner of the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency. We wanted to talk to Laura about her time on campus as well as her accomplished career trajectory. We also want to ask her about working in politics as well as the corporate world and get the details on her brand new company. First of all, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing some of your time with us. I'm very happy to be here. So uh, thanks for the invitation. It's fun to uh, be back virtually anyway right now in Madison. And I'll be there on campus in a few weeks with my daughter, who's a junior in high school, who is going to be touring the campus. Exciting. I know. Convert some more Minnesotans. Of course. Let's just, since this is the first time you've been on 1050 with us, let's just kind of start talking about your college background and choosing your majors and how you spent your time at UW-Madison. So you studied Scandinavian studies and international studies as your two majors while you were here. What was your thinking choosing those? And did you have a plan for after college at that point? So when I came to University of Wisconsin-Madison, I had just come off of a year in Sweden as a Rotary Exchange student. So with that, that was part of why I went into Scandinavian studies. So I tested out of my language requirements and Scandinavian studies was kind of a path that made the campus a little bit smaller for me because there weren't that many Scandinavian studies majors. And I knew I could double major then. So I looked at everything from poli-sci to international, but you know, my real goal was how do I get myself back to Sweden and Europe at some point and work in the international space? And so studying international relations really was where a lot of interest was. And then that intersection, of course, with political science, which was so exciting for me. Yeah. And to continue on a little bit, maybe you share with us your professional narrative or career path from undergraduate through your early career? Like, where did you go after you graduated? Yeah, so really, I worked all throughout college. And uh, I'll tell you, you know, because these are places that are still there, but I worked at the Concourse Hotel in the Governor's Club and waited tables and did that while I was in school so that every summer I would have free time to either do an internship where at that point, a lot of those, and they still are, were unpaid. So how could I, you know, make enough money during the school year and go to class and uh, have my summers. So I had flexibility. So I really pursued internships. I traveled a lot. I, two of my summers, I went back to Europe. For me, I'd say my real pieces of my professional narrative are about working hard, raising my hand, taking risks, and being curious. So I was always willing to look at different roles and pivot into different things and try things from, you know, stuffing envelopes for a political campaign to driving a senator around and being his driver to, you know, really running large events or diving into environmental policy, which was something that I was really interested in as well. So I think from a professional narrative, just 
in that way, it was being strategic, being willing to try out new things and uh, being flexible in where and what I wanted to do. I'd say the other piece, so when you ask about my career tra trajectory and leaving Madison, I left Madison because of things that I was involved in at University of Wisconsin. So I had a, a great opportunity where I was volunteering on the campaign of Senator Russ Feingold at the time, but it was because of my interest and curiosity. I walked into his state Senate office at the time, so this is going to age me, but he was a state senator and I walked into his office and said, look at my grandmother has been living with us for a number of years because she has Alzheimer's and you have a long-term care bill that I'm really interested in and I'd like to volunteer in your office. And they said, okay, come on in. We like a kid that's interested in policy as well as wants to do whatever. And I started answering phones in his state Senate office. And when he announced his bid for the US Senate, they asked me to come over to the campaign. So I did become his driver on his first campaign. I drove all around the state of Wisconsin. And as I say, I know Wisconsin like the back of my hand because Wisconsin's kind of shaped like the hand and Russ had this whole you know, plug where he'd say, oh, next step, Green Bay. And that's when I knew, oh, I guess I'm going to Green Bay the next uh, week or whatever. So I got to know him really well. And then fortunately, when he won his race, which was totally unexpected at that first time, he took me with him to Washington, D.C. So I worked in his U.S. Senate office. And again, it was about, you know, jumping into possibilities and really looking at where I wanted that path to go. And for me as a you know, young student, I was really excited to be able to think about going to Washington. And uh, that's how I ended up in Washington. I'd say the other piece of like professional narrative is, you know, I really do want to be challenged, but I'm always willing to learn the other jobs as well to, to be able to work up the ladder. I really un want to understand and the people that work with me that may work for me at different times. I mean, we are a big teams, so understanding the different roles was really important to me. And so that's how I navigated a lot of my professional work. You know, so many of our majors really want to get to DC, mm -hmm. but for you, um, how did that work out for you? And how did it lead to so many different interesting positions that you've had? So again, I, w when I went to work for on Russ's campaign, and here's the other part, I had a sponsor within the poli sci department that helped me. So I was able to work on Russ's campaign and get credit for it because I did not, and as an independent study, so I had to write papers, I had to do other things, but I could design my own independent study. So I ended up graduating Madison early, three and a half years. And it, I timed it in a way that Russ won in November, I was done at Madison in December, and I could hop with him. And I kind of had that foresight, like if he wins, this is going to be what I could do. So I think that's the other piece is, you know, try a bunch of different things. You, you know, you don't always want to hitch to one wagon, but I did, and it was well worth it. And that's how I ended up in DC. I'd say the other piece um, from Russ's office, I worked in the White House and uh, oversaw some of the interns that came through the White House. And there's great programs in DC to apply within the federal government, as well as, you know, on Capitol Hill and in the State Department even for students to go overseas. So I oversaw some of the interns in the scheduling and advance office of the president and first lady at that time. And I always looked for the students that maybe had that work experience in some way. I don't care if it was working at, you know, the poster shop or working at the union. I liked to see people that had some work experience, some lived experience 
And I always, you know, I had a soft spot for the Badgers, of course, but I always liked the, you know, students from state schools. I felt like I didn't need everybody to come from, you know, big cities. And as long as I could trust and review on paper their kind of work ethic and interest, it was more interesting to me because especially in those internships, those first ones, you're going to have to work hard and you're going to have to do things that maybe aren't, you know, running the show or writing the big policy papers all the time. You're going to have to be able to show that kind of grit and hard work and to, and with it comes a lot of rewards. And if you get the right boss, you're going to have somebody that's going to, you know, give you the opportunities to do the bigger things as well as, when they see that you're willing to do kind of that, the hard work on the front end as too. Let's talk real quick about your decision to pursue an MPA and how that's played out in your career. Cause I think a lot of students, especially in the poli-sci department debate um, the need for an MPA in general, especially now as more people are taking gap years or choosing to start work right after undergrad. So do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, I do. And I I waited seven years before I went and got my um, graduate degree. So I had worked. And I think for me, it was, I was really at a transition point in both my career and life. So I had, and as we talk about this, so, you know, I went from Madison to uh, Washington, D.C. I worked for a closely when I was in the White House, I worked with a woman who was amazing, the former governor of Vermont, Madeline Kunin, who's still in Vermont now, but she got appointed to be the ambassador to Switzerland. And so again, me being in a good positioning myself with somebody that was in a position that she asked me to go with her to Switzerland. So I was with her in Switzerland. And while that was coming to an end with the end of the Clinton White House and Madeline's term as ambassador was coming to an end, I was in this point where I had to decide, was I going to go back to DC? Was I going to go back to Minnesota? What was I going to do? So for me, grad school provided a really great landing spot for me to work on uh, some of my skills that I knew I needed to develop, right? When I was in DC and I was in Switzerland, I was in largely support roles, like close to policy, but not doing the policy work as much. And that provided me a great groundwork to see how the sausage is made and see what's happening uh, and how decisions are made. But I wanted to really kind of remove myself from that in those support roles and figure out how I could transition into a larger policy role. And so going to Michigan at that point, and I went to University of Michigan to the Ford School, it was a great in-between spot for me. It wasn't in DC, it wasn't in Minnesota, and Michigan had, they paid for most of my grad school. And it was, I did the year-long program that was August to August, and they paid for my grad school. So again, that was a really important investment um, that they were willing to invest in me because of the experiences that I had had and what I would bring perhaps to the rest of their students in the program. And it proved out well, because from there, I was able to uh, move back to Minnesota. And that's a whole nother story. But uh, it was a, at the time where, you know, politics were changing in DC. And so for me to look at moving back to Minnesota was uh, what I had decided to do. And it has, I've stayed here ever since, if you can believe it. Yeah. And that's right. I'm 23 years or something back in Minnesota, 22 years back in Minnesota and 21 years married. I'll tell you that to a fellow Badger that I met when I moved back to Minnesota. Very fun. We are wondering, do you think that having that graduate degree is really important for people trying to get into similar roles that you've had, or was it just a good convenient thing to do at the time? You know what? I think it's a, I, I think it's important. I mean, I think when you go back to school, especially in a graduate degree, and I, I will tell you, I've 
chaired the board at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs uh, for the past five years. And so I see a lot of students that come through there and I see a lot of graduate students there as well. And what I know about you know, the masters in public policy or public affairs is that they really look at that broader like problem solving. I think the important piece and what I learned from all my political jobs before is you know, policy is not made in a vacuum. <laughs> And we all know that as poli-sci majors, but it's not made in a vacuum. You have to look at the politics and political side of it as well. And so how you can problem solve and negotiate as well as kind of like I've said about this flexibility piece of uh, looking at the problem and involving people in the solutions is a really important piece. And I think you get hands-on experience at grad school in the policy degrees. And I know that we did this at uh, Michigan, but we definitely have been doing this at University of Minnesota where you bring in community to help to really look at those policy solutions. And I think that's a really important piece of the pie that you might not get otherwise if you just you know land in a policy role or land in a you know agency of some sort. Finding how you involve those communities is a really important piece and grad school provides a lot of that. I also think that, you know, I went into business, right? And people are looking for kind of that design thinker and that person that can navigate complexity. And uh, that's a great piece that I think that a policy graduate degree uh, and MPA provides. You know, it's a big investment. Um, so think about that and it also think about where you want it to take you in the future with that investment. Because what, for me, I knew that I didn't want to be saddled with debt from a graduate degree because I thought most of my career was definitely going to be in the public sector and how was I going to pay for that, you know, over time. And I thought hard about that. I'd say the other piece, you know, seven years in, I was so much smarter about school and how I approached it in the opportunities that I sought out at grad school. I had a great professor who kind of took me on in different roles. I worked at the Williams Davidson Institute as a research assistant at um, Michigan, which is all about emerging markets. And so here's my international relations degree, you know, playing out with the business school and emerging markets. I got to go to China to put together a big conference, you know, for a month and all of this stuff that I think were opportunities that I knew at that point that I just had a lot more confidence to seek out people and ask for that advice. The other piece, I managed my time so much better. So you know, I'd ride my bike up to campus and I'd say, you know, even if my classes didn't start, I had one class at 10, I, you know, got there at nine and did some work and stayed up on campus until four or five and then went home. And then I call my friends and say, Hey, you want to go to a movie or let's go out to the bars or something. And they'd say, well, we have a test tomorrow. And I said, yeah, but I'm ready. You know, I know it. Uh, so it was a different way of thinking. There wasn't the all-nighters. I treated my grad school as I did a job. You know, I worked nine to five and that was when I worked on things and I had a much fuller life. And I think that there's something to be said for how you approach, you know, those types of investments in your future and in yourself, but that you're just smarter in when you get to grad school, if you've got some more experience too. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that we've touched a bit on your pivot to the private sector, but you know, what went into that decision? You know, what, what pushed you to say, you know, I've, I've been working for the government. I've been working for the state of Minnesota. I think it's time. Yeah. So when I went to grad school, you know, for me, I was looking at uh, wanting to work for potentially a global company and one that was doing good things in the community. And Minnesota is very fortunate, Minneapolis with so many Fortune 100 or Fortune 500 companies here. And 
a history of doing really good things in the community. So they know that these are community partners. And so for me, I mean, really, it was about to an individual that helped me. So here's the other piece that I would advise always is, you know what, don't burn any bridges, <laughs> be gracious. And, you know, because things don't always go as they want. So here I was at grad school. I mentioned that I was in China for a month. Well, I got hired to work at Honeywell back in Minnesota in a manager of government relations role. And I thought, well, this could be interesting. And Honeywell was doing a lot in this one area of Minneapolis that I thought was really impactful and important, uh, especially with young mothers and childcare and other pieces that was exciting. So they were kind of intertwining this policy. So I applied for this job, met this woman who hired me, who was incredible. And they offered me the job. And I said, well, great. Uh, I'll start in a month because I'm going to China. And they said, great. And so between my offer date and my start date, the whole thing fell apart. So what they did is Allied Signal and Honeywell merged, jobs moved to New Jersey, and we're moving to New Jersey. So I called the woman who hired me and said, oh my gosh, what does this mean for me? And she said, I don't know what this means for me even. Uh, do you want to go to New Jersey? No, I don't. I want to go back to Minnesota, I said. No offense to New Jerseyans, but I wanted to go back to Minnesota. And so I ended up you know, back in Minnesota. And with her, I said, you know, can I just keep up with you? Like every six months have coffee and touch base. And can you help me with like five contacts in Minnesota? So she helped me with contacts and they were all people in the business community that were these, you know, impactful policy minded people. And they all directed me at that point, go to work for and this is going to sound crazy because of course I thought it was crazy. Go work for governor Jesse Ventura. He just started and the whole business community is going to work for him and you will meet those people in the business sector, but also you will neutralize your politics, which have been largely, you know, highly Democrat focus. You will get some policy experience that will be really interesting and you know, you'll learn to work with Republicans, Democrats, and independent. It can't be a better experience for a policy person. So I did, I followed that advice. And that woman that I was telling you about that I, that had hired me, I kept up with her every six months. We had coffee and whatnot and lunch and just, she served as a mentor to me. And after I worked in the Ventura administration for, you know, three and a half years, she ended up getting a job at Best Buy, heading international or industry relations and public affairs. And she, three and a half years later, hired me as the first manager of government affairs uh, at Best Buy. So again, here's a person that had, you know, was willing to take a risk at me that I was loyal to back. And she said, let's, let's try this. Let's see. And at that point, my politics were neutralized and uh, Best Buy was just getting their government affairs division started. And they were looking for somebody that had state experience, federal experience, and some international experience. And I had all that. And so I thought, let's try it out and see. I'll probably be here for five years, max, three to five. You know, that was kind of my trajectory at that time. And let's try it out. But I got to be in a, the ground of something and build something and really realized then that uh, there was so much that businesses can do in this policy space uh, to make real change. And that was how I got involved in um, at Best Buy. And I'm so grateful I did. I was there for almost 16 years in all different roles. And again, navigating all these different roles uh, there, again, because I was willing to raise my hand. I was willing to try something different and new. And I got into some really significant policy issues that had a lot of uh, impact, especially on the environment, but also, you know, in the communities where Best Buy operated, which 
largely was every community, right, at that point in time. However, when I started at Best Buy, I think there was like 300 stores. When I left, there was a thousand. So again, to be in on the ground level of something to grow it uh, was something that was really exciting. On environment, let's uh, just talking about that. I mean, this is the other piece that I think is interesting with Best Buy. The first issue that I really worked on at Best Buy and Government Affairs was related to electronics recycling. And again, people were like, where do I bring this? What do I do? How do I do it? And then we saw states that were implementing or wanting to pass legislation in all different ways of what it meant for the consumer. And so I helped uh, look at the problem as well as the landscape of what was happening. And we at Best Buy devised a, a retail uh, in-store take-back program just as a pilot to see if consumers would do this. And certainly consumers were looking for a place other than just their cities and localities and counties, but they were looking for a place and then worked with the manufacturers of the products on helping to fund also the in-store program so that we could have a solution for consumers that was, you know, within 10 miles of anybody's home in a sense. And so that's how the, the uh, Best Buy recycling program really got started and has recycled over 2 billion pounds of electronics. And with it, me and my team went state by state and worked with lawmakers to look at if you were passing legislation on electronics recycling, how could you do this in a way that it's extended producer responsibility that producers you know, have to share in part of the problem. And that's what we're seeing with a lot of these, you know, take back laws or other things. Like how do you make it so that everyone has a vested interest in solving a large problem? So you've got consumers bringing it back and maybe paying a minor fee, got the retailers who are willing to take it back. And you've got the manufacturers who are now invested in this program. And 25 states now have laws that are, that allow for, this type of partnership to go forward, which was an exciting piece of how you dive in and then look at ways to, you know, solve a larger problem. Of course, you know, then with a business like Best Buy, it's good for the business because you're getting people into the store and drawing traffic in and making it a place that, you know, isn't just Amazon, you know, delivering it to your door, certainly Best Buy will deliver it to your door, but you've got that relationship in a sense with, with that store in, in your community. And I think that's the future of retail is going to be that establishing, you know, that sense of community and that community investment as well that you'll see. It will be a combination of online and in-store, but I don't know. I think people, especially with TVs and, uh, and the technologies that we see, people want someone to feel like they can ask someone questions and trust and build that trust. What would your advice be to students who know that they want to be able to solve problems, look at these kinds of solutions, but are unsure if they want to go to it from the policy side or the business route? How are these roles different? How are they similar? And how do you how do you pick what's for you? You know what? I would say figure out what it is that's going to be what drives you and what's of interest to you first. So for me, you know, going into the private sector was an area that I really hadn't explored. So a, a naturally curious person and understanding that you've got all these different ways. You've got business, you've got state, local, federal governments, you've got or advocacy organizations. Everybody plays a role in shaping policy. So I would say, think about what it is that is really important to you and what drives you. For me, it was curiosity and good policy in a sense, uh, but also the, the complexity of anything. I love complex, right? And how you navigate through this. And so that was why I ended up 
at Best Buy. And again, I never thought I would stay for 16 years. We treated my salary as if I was, and our lifestyle as if I was on a public salary always. And even as I grew, like I left Best Buy as chief sustainability officer and corporate responsibility officer, I was at a very senior level and we still lived like I was a a public sector employee because I wanted to always have that flexibility to be able to go back and change if that was what I wanted to do. And because I wanted to know that I was making the most impact that I could in any role that I had. And so I'd say, you know, figure out what it is that is true to you and for me, environmental became really interesting, both from because I'd lived in Sweden where they were so much more progressive on the environment and then getting into Best Buy as one of my first policy issues that I was dealing with um, on electronics recycling. I knew that that was probably something that would be more of my future. And so building upon that became uh, really something that I saw as both uh, meaningful and uh, direction that I wanted to continue to build. And after that long stint at Best Buy, you did end up pivoting back into politics as commissioner of the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency. And we'd love to hear a little bit about that role. That sounds like it could be, it could go a lot of different directions. Well, it can. And I was really fortunate to be asked to join Governor Tim Walls on his cabinet. And so I was the commissioner of the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency. The MPCA is both a regulatory body, you know, it's basically the EPA arm in the state of Minnesota. And so we have, you know, federal laws that we implement at the state level under the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act but we also uh, have state policy and state work. And so one of the things that I was able to do with the governor is we established the climate change sub-cabinet and I chaired the climate change sub-cabinet and had an executive order put together on climate change that the governor was interested in really making a mark on getting Minnesota to back in and back on their goals of uh, reducing carbon emissions. And so for me, while a lot of it was regulatory on permits, on that to industry and municipalities that we looked at, and 80% of the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency was scientists and science-based. So you had a lot of chemists, you had a lot of engineers and biologists with your water sampling and everything that you did, but you also had a big policy arm. So we uh, were responsible for looking at climate change rulemakings, which again are a part of especially state agencies where you can implement changes based on your statutory requirement, but through a public, very public rulemaking process. And so when I was commissioner, one of the things that we tackled under the governor's you know, guidance was to look at how we bring in more electric vehicles to Minnesota. And so Minnesota just through its rulemaking process, just passed the Clean Cars Minnesota Act. And now that will be implemented, which will really look at bringing more cars into the state of Minnesota and also expand the charging network in a way that I think will be aligned with about 14 other states around the country. And uh, Minnesota is the first Midwest state to tackle this and do this. And so again, it was an exciting time to be there. I will say though, and you know, if you look at things and Google things, this was not always a popular way to approach this. So the Senate GOP and the senators, which in Minnesota, it's a very interesting political environment. Again, complexity that is exciting, but you can get caught in the middle of this too, is that the Senate is controlled by Republicans and really only have a one vote margin. The House is controlled by Democrats and the governor is a Democrat. And it's the only um, legislature in the country right now that is divided, uh, which is really interesting because 
you think about our politics, right? Um, but this is a, so you may have like Republicans in charge of legislature and a Democratic governor or a Republican, you know, governor and a Democrats in charge of legislature in this state. I mean, you really have to be able to work uh, through that complexity of politics and policy and the Senate Republicans were not fond of us doing a rulemaking through the administration. The governor saw this as a key part of his climate agenda. And I probably testified, you know, at least 10 times on the rulemaking and what we were doing. And we had 14,000 comments that came in and largely popular. And, you know, the polling shows that it's largely popular in Minnesota, but uh, certainly was not uh, popular with some of the Republicans in the Senate, but it was a risk that I was willing to take and the governor was willing to take because we saw it as a key part of a leadership in the Midwest, as well as a part of the governor's climate agenda and the climate sub-cabinet and their agenda. And so it was pretty exciting to be able to move forward with that and see it, but it wasn't a without some consequence. So my role as the commissioner of the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency is subject to Senate confirmation. And remember how I said the Senate has a one vote uh, majority. And after two and a half years in the job, they wanted to bring me up for confirmation because they were concerned about the clean cars rulemaking. And it was clear that they, their intention was that they would try to look at ways to remove me based on the governor's policies. And I wasn't going to, uh, I felt like we had made the impact that I had. I'd probably done what I could in the role. And the average tenure of a job like this is about two and a half years uh, when you're working in this type of intense situation. I had an $800 million budget and thousand employees. And felt we had a really successful legislative session. It was time then for me to move on before I was subjected to a floor vote, which could have gone either way. I'm not sure, but I decided it was time to move on. And so I've done that now. I'm grateful for those opportunities. And I just think as they look at, again, as you look at policy and politics, this is a really interesting way that things play out, right? People become kind of in that, in the crosshairs in a sense as well, but there's a lot of things in the record that we stand on uh, as an administration and as the pollution control agency with accomplishments. And I was excited to be a part of that. And after that, you know, after all is said and done, you are now CEO and founder of your own company. I am. So I'm just starting on that and I'm excited. It's called Purpose Strategies. And again, I'm really looking at ways that I take what I've learned through the private sector and being both in the, in a regulated industry and as a regulator and how I can help both companies and nonprofits really make those pivots and how they can both benefit their communities as well as uh, work with all kinds of stakeholders to make for effective organizations. And really the lens is on environmental social governance, which we're seeing right now in that is a really key part of our organizations, right? You have to, and especially our businesses, you really have to have environmental social governance as your investors are looking at it, your shareholders are looking at it. And so when I was at Best Buy, I helped set all the carbon goals for the company as well. Uh, So the company's set to be carbon neutral by 2050. And 80% reduction by 2030. And so that's the kind of lens that I hope to bring and advise uh, companies and others on. I'm certainly taking on different clients that I'm working with right now to do that, but I'm doing it at my own pace because that's the other exciting part. Like I've said, we're, my husband and I, and our daughters are 16 and 18. So they're at kind of transitional points in their lives. And I think that it's a great place for Uh, me to be able to pause and take on projects that I want to take on on my own schedule and not on someone else's. And I feel really fortunate that 
we're at a point in our lives where it can do that. And then I take on lots of side projects like fun, you know, in the community. I've been really involved with different groups in the community. I told you I was on the board of the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. I'm also involved with PACER, which is a really great group that helps families uh, navigate kids with disabilities and services for kids with disabilities. And that is something that I personally have had challenges with, with our family. And so I think if, you know, I had trouble with the schools and others with IEPs and figuring that out, that if I can be helpful to others, I will. And so those are things that allow me for time. And then, of course, I'm always involved in politics in lots of ways. So I do everything I can to help elect uh, women to any level of office. And so I've chaired Women Winning, which is a board of directors and an organization here in Minnesota, which it helps to elect pro-choice women at all levels of office from school board to the presidency. And so I was very involved in that and still am very involved in that. And so I've got a lot of places where I can put my time that I feel both my policy expertise and my you know values align and feel really grateful that I can do that. Wow. You are a busy, busy person, but that's fantastic. <laughs> that's great to hear. And I, love I think being busy. So, yes. you know, on top of this, I, you know, golf on Tuesdays too. So that's kind of fun <laughs> with a bunch of great women. And I'm a terrible golfer. It wasn't, I was never a person that thought like I should golf, but I don't know. Someone else thought I should golf. So again, try something new and curling. I'm in a curling club on Wednesday nights now too. Oh, very cool. I know that's like getting to be a thing in Minnesota. I've been to a restaurant that's like also a curling club. Well, that's probably where I'm curling. It's kind of fun. No, it's a, yeah, it's a restaurant too. It's really, it's really fun. So of course it involves maybe a cocktail and then some curling and some dinner after. And we, we don't take ourselves all that uh, serious, but so it's kind of a fun thing. That's awesome. Well, we do want to ask you after all of this experience that you've had in so many different areas, you're probably very qualified to answer this question because a lot of, especially LNS students are curious with this wonderful liberal arts education that we're getting, if there are any holes that we should focus on filling in terms of like hard skills or things we might not be exposed to as like social science people that would be really helpful for after graduation in the job market. So do you have anything that you think was helpful for you to develop as a professional or things you did at your, in your undergrad that were helpful as soon as you entered the job market? What I would say is if, you know, you're really interested in environmental policy, for example, and like you're just learning from the textbook, you're probably not going to get the experience that you're going to need to transition into a job. So go volunteer for a organization or try to get an internship with one of the organizations like the Sierra Club or others, like really put your neck out there to do some volunteering, you know, translate that into working for a politician. And that may not be always interest if you're a policy purist in a way, but you've, again, you cannot do these jobs in a vacuum. And so understanding the, how policy and politics intersects is a really important thing. So that's why those advocacy organizations are really great places to, you know, cut your chops in a sense of getting, you know, really involved and, oh, sorry about cut your chops. I think that's kind of like a, uh, I don't want to piss off the uh, vegetarians in the groups, (laughs) but um, the, you know, like really get involved in those organizations or with the politicians themselves to understand how they're making decisions. And you'll probably get to write a policy paper or two, but, or you'll get stuck. You know, my first job with Russ was writing constituent letters when I went to DC. So I learned a lot about, you know, policy views because people would write in on everything from, you know, um, 
bovine growth hormones in cows to, you know, the killing of prairie dogs to, you know, you name it. So I had to learn a lot about all of those issues. And that was pretty exciting because it formed a base for me for understanding kind of what comes at someone in leadership and how you can, you know, constitute some good policy too. So I'd say, you know, make sure you're looking at it from both sides. Wise words. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've, we've covered a lot today and we've, this has been a great conversation, but what's, what did we miss? You know, what, what have we not talked about that maybe we should have? So I think, you know, what I love about poli sci majors and the social sciences is that you are really looking at getting into this space because you have maybe a strategic mindset and you like to solve problems. And so that idea of that complexity, I think is a piece that just dive in, take risks, put yourself out there, ask for people to mentor you, sponsor you. It's okay. And treat any type of mentorship. It could be just a one-time thing, or it could be a texting relationship. It could be, you know, how you are seeking out others, but seek out and ask for uh, those mentors. I would say even at my age and in my career, I, I've kind of established my own personal board of directors. And this was sound advice that I actually got from Senator Tina Smith, who is a friend of mine, but she was asked about this and she said, you know, I established my personal board of directors. Laura's on my board of directors. And I said, well, good. Tina's on my board of directors now that I've got this idea. But again, this idea of people in your lives and make sure that, you know, I've got students that I consider as part of my board of directors to, you know, the woman who Paula Prawl, who had hired me at Best Buy years ago is on my board of directors to, you know, Senator Tina Smith. So I think it's a fun thing to think about who in that, in your like stratosphere can give you really sound advice, uh, tell you things as it is and uh, don't hold it back and ask for help and ask for that feedback. That's the one thing that I've learned a lot in my career is you really do have to ask for your feedback. How could I have done that better? Should I have, you know, looked at this a different way? And I do a lot of that, you know, I move forward quickly, but I do a lot of that look back on how um, I could have made a different decision or tried something different or involved different people in a decision when it doesn't go maybe the right way. So I think it's uh, being open to that learning and uh, asking for that feedback is really an important piece. I love that advice. We want to be respectful of your time because I know we're coming up on noon here. Do you have time for one fun question? Yeah. Okay. So we are going to end with this fun one. We're curious. We know you're bringing your daughter to visit campus soon. Mm-hmm. Where are you excited to show her? And what is your favorite place to visit when you come back? Okay. So of course we go to the union and whether it's the terrace or the rat skeller, I mean, that was always my hangout place. And I love it there. Mickey's dairy bar is like by far my, you know, favorite uh, breakfast place. And my roommates and I would be way over on the other side of campus on Johnson street. And we'd walk all the way over to Mickey's dairy bar, like some Saturday mornings or Sunday mornings. So I love the uh, griddle cakes there. So I'd say that's a good place. And so we're definitely bringing her there. And then, you know, she's bringing a friend. So I will have to try out some other places. She's the vegetarian. So there's lots of the restaurants on State Street that we love, whether it was um, Himal Chuli or Who Snooze, but those are like the classic places that we will bring my daughter because she is the vegetarian and loves that. I'd say for my husband and I, we'll probably go to the plaza. I've got to go to the plaza. We had lots of funny uh, stories with my college roommates where we'd all hang out at the plaza and we'd play Oh, me and my Bobby McGee on the jukebox. And, uh, and then my roommates, we would call and page people at the plaza, like 
that we had this secret way of paging each other. So I, if I needed to know that, again, we didn't have the cell phones back then, but if I needed to know that Laura Mazzoni was at the plaza, I would call to the plaza and ask for Tori Amos and to see if they could put Tori Amos on the phone, which was like our favorite musician on the time. And certainly they'd page Tori Amos and Laura would show up and say, yeah, I'm here, come on down. So the plaza is uh, also one of the classic places that we'll have to go, even though uh, my daughter won't eat one of their burgers, but my husband and I probably will. <laughs> Amazing. Excellent choices, I think. <laughs> yeah. And picnic point, we'll have to, you know, it depends. We're coming in November 11th. So if it's freezing cold, I, but I love picnic point and was, I would always ride my bike down there. So we'll have to bring Mia and her friend down there too. It's so and funny. Picnic point is like unlivable between the months of like November oh, yeah. and when the lake freezes over and then the moment the lake freezes over it's hopping again oh totally exactly and of course we'll do Bascom Hill and all that and I'm sure that the hill doesn't seem nearly as steep and big as it did when I was in college but uh, yeah. we'll have to traverse it <laughs> absolutely that's exciting and, oh yeah. Yeah, I'm really excited. I, I hope she loves it too. And we are going to go to a football game and jump around, of course. So, uh, which we'll have to do maybe November 11th if it's cold. So I'm excited about that. Wouldn't be a UW Madison visit without it. No, right. Exactly. Well, that brings us to our conclusion. And you know what? Thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today, Laura. This has been very informative, very helpful. And I've loved all the advice you gave. Yeah, well, thank you so much. It's really a joy to be with you all and uh, good luck. I, you know, study hard, do well and get out there in your community because I think uh, the more you're involved in your community, the more it's going to really prepare you for what you want to do next. And I think your contacts are going to be right there in the community more than they are going to only be in your, in your books. So I would say it's a combination of studying and practical being out there in your community. So good luck. For more information, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Addison Lathers and Claire Salmi and produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.